Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 40. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And I am laboring. Oh boy, this is going to be a tough one for me to get through. Yeah, for those of you who are new to the podcast, welcome, and we are sorry. Sean does not usually sound like this. You know, at first I thought maybe it was just the pollen after spending two days on the golf course. I'm really hoping that's all this is. I don't know. I don't know. It was like flipping a switch. You sounded great, and then all of a sudden... Not so great. Yeah. To put it lightly, (laughs) not so great. But you know what? I am excited to be here. We didn't want to cancel the show because, no of course, way. We're, we're so dedicated to getting you guys a show a week. But it may have been easier to cancel the show if we were talking about a movie that was not so iconic for both of us. I, I, I dare say anybody that was born anywhere between the early 80s to, say, the early 90s, I, I, think, any, I, I think everybody had this film high on their list. Because I think everybody of that of that age range remembers when this movie came out and it ruled the world. Yeah, really. Find somebody who didn't like Aladdin as a child and you found a liar. I mean, Aladdin, everybody liked it. I, You're right. I've never met anybody that didn't like it. And for a time, do you know this was the highest grossing animated film of all time? I and bet. It, and it was the first animated film to gross over... A half a billion dollars at the box office in a theatrical run. Now, of course, you're looking back 25, more than 25 years ago now. So with inflation, it, the way it is, right? You know, a matinee ticket was not twelve dollars. Right. I remember being able to go to the movies. My mom would give me like fifteen bucks, and that was enough to get me a ticket, a large popcorn, a large soda, and a bag of candy, or two movies at one point. Like if yes. you didn't get any food, you could do two movies on that back to back. You could. Yeah, those days are long gone. But this film was huge when it came out. It's still big now, which is why you have this live-action remake coming out later this week. Um, but I, I just want to jump into it, I think, because I, I have so much to say about this movie, and I know that you do too. Yeah, all right, let's do it. For those of you who live under a rock, we're going to give you the plot first, and then we're going to go into our review. Uh, so when the film opens, we meet a peddler who shows us Agrabah, the lamp, and tells us the tale of Aladdin, a young man scraping to get by whose good heart brings him a stroke of luck. Before we are introduced to Aladdin, we meet Jafar, the sultan's advisor who is trying to make his own luck. He has tracked down the Cave of Wonders and intends to seek out the magic lamp of legend inside, but is rejected because he is unworthy and he must find the diamond in the rough to enter the cave. When we do meet Aladdin, he and his pet monkey Abu have just stolen a loaf of bread from the marketplace and are trying to outrun the palace guards. Through some clever tricks, they manage to escape, and just as they are about to eat, they meet two children who are worse off than they are. They give the children their bread and head back to their loft, overlooking the palace, and dream about the day when their situation will improve. In the palace, we meet the sultan, who is trying to marry off his daughter Jasmine. As the law states, she must choose a husband by her 21st birthday, which is in three days. Jasmine wants to wait until she finds love to get married, and runs away from the palace to escape her fate. 
Back in the marketplace the next day, Jasmine is enjoying blending in, but is not street smart enough to navigate Agrabah on her own. Luckily, she is spotted by Aladdin, who is instantly attracted to her and helps her escape after being chased by the palace guards again. Aladdin takes her to his loft, where they have a heart-to-heart about feeling trapped in their lifestyle, and the guards catch up to them. They bring Jasmine home and imprison Aladdin, who Jafar has learned is the diamond in the rough. Jafar disguises himself as a fellow prisoner and helps Aladdin escape jail on the condition that Aladdin comes to the Cave of Wonders and brings him the lamp. Aladdin is able to get the lamp without a problem until Abu gets greedy and tries to get the forbidden treasure. The cave implodes around them, but they escape on a magic carpet. They almost make it out when Jafar, still in disguise, takes the lamp and double-crosses them, throwing Aladdin, Abu, and the carpet back in the cave where they are trapped. Abu's greed this time works in their favor because he managed to get the lamp back from Jafar and Aladdin unleashes the genie who grants them three wishes. Aladdin first wants to get out of the cave and cleverly talks the genie into breaking them out without using a wish. Having trouble deciding what his first official wish will be, he asks the genie what he would want and learns that the genie wishes for freedom, which must be done with a wish. Aladdin promises to use his last wish to set the genie free and his first to become a prince so that he has a chance with Jasmine. The genie throws Aladdin, now Prince Ali, a parade up to the palace to court the princess, who is still not interested in getting married. She is, however, interested in Prince Ali and allows herself to go with him on a magic carpet ride, where she realizes the similarities between Ali and the boy in the marketplace, who she has been told was sentenced to beheading by Jafar. Ali confesses that he is the boy from the marketplace, but tells Jasmine he was there dressed as a commoner, which she can relate to and makes her decide that Ali is husband material. Aladdin realizes that he can't be Ali without the genie and becomes conflicted about his remaining wishes. Back at the palace, Jafar has also figured out who Ali really is and plans to remove him from the picture and marry Jasmine himself so that he can become the sultan. He enlists his sidekick Iago to find the lamp and takes over as the genie's master himself, exposing the truth about Aladdin. He abandons Aladdin Abu and unbeknownst to him the magic carpet in the middle of nowhere. Aladdin finds the carpet and heads back to Agrabah determined to make things right with everyone. Using his clever street smarts, he is able to trick Jafar into wishing he were a genie himself. Jafar doesn't think about what that really means and as a consequence gets trapped in his own lamp taking Iago with him and genie sends them to the Cave of Wonders. As much as Aladdin wants to be with Jasmine, he's never had a friend like genie and honors his promise to set him free. Realizing Aladdin is a diamond in the rough, the Sultan changes the law so that Aladdin can marry Jasmine, and that is how Aladdin enters a whole new world. You know what I think I like the most about this movie is that it has a perfect balance of drama and comedy. Um, I think a lot of that comes through in the music, which we will talk about later on, but it's not overwhelmingly in one direction or the next. And I think because of that and because of the characters who we'll also dissect in a minute, I remember this being the first film that I could remember where boys and girls could each like it equally. Because Beauty and the Beast, The Little Mermaid, they're more female-driven in their target audience. And I remember this one sort of appealing to everybody. Right. I definitely think girls identify more with Little Mermaid. I think Beauty and the Beast, you had a lot more of an ensemble cast that everybody could identify with. But you that this really had something for everyone. You have a princess and just by the genie's very existence, it becomes a buddy comedy, really. Yeah. And I, I felt I felt that 
all of the actors and actresses in this movie, I felt like they had a good vibe. And I felt that they played off of each other very well, and I thought that the emotion was there, and it feels very genuine. And I think that that carries over to this day. I do agree with you there, but I disagree where you think, um, you know, it's more balanced and it's it's not being gender neutral. But I feel like there the film is kind of unbalanced with regard to like how evil Jafar is juxtaposed against how goofy the genie is. And I think that that's what makes it so funny and enjoyable because it is two extremes. I think that you had to do it that way, though, because Jafar is so evil. And like when he becomes the snake at the very end, mm-hmm. that, that I remember metaphor that, alert. I mean, that was it was. Yes. But I remember it was a scary image. And sure. I, I think that you needed a goofy genie and who better than Robin Williams, of course. But I think you needed that to balance it out, because otherwise. I think that that would have killed the vibe of the whole movie and I think it would have just scared too many kids I would agree with that before we get too far ahead I do want to dial it back speaking of Robin Williams and the genie yeah. um, first of all I'm not convinced that he ever saw a script for this movie I like to think that they just put him in a sound booth and let him go maybe gave him a loose outline and <laughs> we got what we got well I think between him and Gilbert Gottfried they gave them a lot of freedom yeah, but I want to talk about... Uh, Which is dangerous, by the yeah, way, considering really. the two people you're giving freedom to. They rolled the dice big time on that one. Uh, but I want to talk about Robin Williams' first appearance in this movie as the peddler. I think as a child, you definitely identify, obviously, that is the voice of Robin Williams. And I never really thought about it too much, but after these last couple of viewings that we've done in prep for the show... Um, I really think that the peddler is supposed to be the genie in human form. And I will tell you why. Um, Aside from the voice, obviously, um, their facial hair is very similar. They do have the twisted goatee, which you could make the argument that Jafar has as well. But Jafar's is a little bit more jaggedy where this one is more smooth. It's kind of the same. Um, But it pulls from the genie's color palette. The peddler has a blue robe with that red sash around the middle, which is the genie. Um, And what I only realized upon this viewing, where did he get the lamp from? And how does he know Aladdin's story? I think that this is what freedom means to the genie. I think that he, you know, wants to blend in and, and just be a human and out of the lamp. And this is what his freedom has got him. Yeah, it's an interesting theory. I haven't been able to figure out if that was done intentionally or if that was just sort of an Easter egg that they planted. But I think given all of the similarities and given what you just pointed out, I think there's certainly a case that can be made that that is the that is the genie in human form. Yeah, I really I I always thought it was an Easter egg, but it wasn't until this time around, like I said, where I was like, wait a second. Where did he get the lamp? Right. That also makes Julian fries. Yes. And doesn't break. It broke. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, that, that was just something before we got to a head that I wanted to point out. Um, but other than that, you know, I, I kind of like that we do kind of have that lingering question because the rest of the script is like foolproof. You know, we had said... 
uh, in our very first episode, The Little Mermaid is my favorite movie. But we had a lot of questions that we felt were unanswered. This, I, I have maybe two things. Otherwise, this is a near perfect film. Yeah, I'd say this is the closest thing to a perfect film that we've reviewed since Mary Poppins. Yeah. Because I do think Mary Poppins is the perfect film, and I said it then, and I will state it again now. The original Mary Poppins, that is. I do believe it is probably the greatest film that the Walt Disney Company has ever made. The other thing is it has the slight edge because Walt himself touched it. Walt himself touched a lot of great films, though, but, I mean, that one obviously is very much the outlier. But, yes, you're right. If you go back and listen to episode number one, we did have a couple of things that we questioned about the script in Little Mermaid, but you're right. Like, I remember walking away from two, three viewings of this movie and saying, I hardly have any notes here, and that's very uncommon. Usually I have two or three pages, but anything I have to say is, is more about the music and the characters and less about the plot because it really is that good. Yeah. It's tied up with a pretty bow, and as I said, I believe the film is balanced. But if, there's, if, if I have one question at all, it's during the scene when they do Whole New World. The film, it's in Agrabah, which is a fictional place. You know it's in the Middle East. They never out and out say that it's in India or that it's in Jordan or that it's in Egypt or where exactly it is. Right. You can assume that it is similar. You know, it, it, it is somewhere in that geographical area. Sure. But you sort of see India and Egypt and China when they do a whole new world when they're on the magic carpet. Right. So they're traveling quite a distance very fast. And I guess you don't really recognize it as a kid geographically. How did you get to all of these places on a carpet in such a short period of time? It's a magic carpet. That's what I'm saying, though. If that is my only thing that stands out, if that's my only complaint, I, I certainly think that this is, yeah, it's it's pretty close to a perfect movie. Yeah, my only, uh, and it's not even so much a complaint as it is we'll call it a concern I guess an observation yes um you know when Aladdin is trapped in the prison cell and Jafar in disguise breaks him out obviously we know that Jafar didn't really want to arrest him he just wanted to get Aladdin in his possession so that he could take him to the cave of wonders because as we said, Aladdin is the diamond in the rough. He's the only one who can get in there, and Jafar is not worthy. So he needs him. Um, obviously, Aladdin wants to get out of prison, but you're blindly trusting, even though we don't know it's Jafar. I mean, we know it's Jafar. He doesn't right. know it's Jafar. You're trusting a criminal to get you out of there. Like, it never once crossed your mind how he got in there in the first place, and should you be really trusting? What if he's a mass murderer? If I were stuck in prison... For a crime I did not commit, or a crime that I did, not that I've committed any crimes, but if somebody had a way of getting me out, I would follow them to the end of the earth. Anything that would get me out of captivity is good for me. Well, I guess, I guess it is kind of a uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of situation. Um, I like how they kept bringing Allah back in. 
but like as an exclamation. Allah forbid you have a daughter like you, Jasmine. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to saying, God forbid. Yeah. Because again, that attention to detail and trying to make it more for a lack of a better term, culturally accurate. Mm. But nobody in the Middle East is saying Allah forbid. <laughs> but I I thought that well, it was... Well, they may have their own expression, but there there may be some expression using Allah. Yes. I, I just thought that it was clever, and I enjoyed it for what it's worth. It was a little thing. It's a little detail. And not something that ever stood out to me until I watched this movie recently. Really? Yeah, I I never really picked up on it. That was something that always kind of stood out to me because, you know, you know what it's supposed to, you know, our expression is God forbid. Uh, And I I always noticed that they switched it out. Never, yeah, over my head. It's just that kind of attention to detail that, uh, you know, that's what makes a Disney movie a Disney movie. Um, I do want to talk about some of the other things that they got right with the script. Um, or not right, but just I, I feel they they just made some clever choices throughout the whole thing. Like even just how we've seen an older father trying to marry off his child before in Cinderella. Um, I think it was kind of cool to have that situation that situation as a gender swap now where you do have a female that he's trying to marry off. But, you know, you're talking about being culturally accurate you are talking about a culture that doesn't give females a lot of freedom. That's what's done. I mean, they're giving Jasmine until her 21st birthday. Right. Which, you know, when most kids are considered, are, are concerned with, uh, you know, getting to drink legally by the time they're 21, she's yes. got to choose a husband, you know? Yeah. Um, so I thought that was kind of cool. And even though it's something we've seen in Disney before, it's a completely different approach to it. It's a different situation altogether. And it does tie back to the culture. So I thought that was a really smart choice. Um, I think Aladdin and Jasmine have hands down the best meeting of any Disney couple ever. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, you know, I like that it it's completely by happenstance. I mean, most of them are... A, Ariel, she's obsessed with human culture. She knows who Eric is. She's passed him a couple of times. But she kind of arranges her meeting with him because she yeah. saves him. Um, Belle takes her father's place as prisoner. That's kind of a forced, you know, her hand is kind of forced in that regard. Right. This is just purely by chance. I mean, obviously, Aladdin's a little smit- smitten with Jasmine just based on her looks. But I love their first conversation. I think it's so smart how Aladdin is just like just go with this and Jasmine just kind of blindly trusts him but then she one-ups him like you know Aladdin is trying to plead the case that Jasmine's crazy and she doesn't know what she's doing to get her away from somebody who's going to hurt her right and um you know, when he says, all right, come on, it's time to go see the doctor. And then she starts talking to a camel. I just thought it's so it, it was so smart to establish that, like, Jasmine's on the level with him. And she's as smart and clever and quick thinking in her own right. It's a very important piece of the film, more than just, you know, your meet cute for all intents and purposes. Exactly. Um, what I think is important about this is a it establishes, as you just said, 
how street smart Aladdin is. We saw it in the first scene. We obviously see it in the first musical number that he's involved with. But I think that it's a big character development moment for him. But what I also like about this scene is that Jasmine is a total fish out of water. And I think that that humanizes her. Because up until this point in time, you only know her as being Princess Jasmine. She has her pet tiger. She lives in the palace. She she yearns to get away from the palace. You run the risk that she almost comes off as a spoiled brat who doesn't appreciate what she has. This scene is important. When she just takes an apple and gives it to somebody because... And she goes, oh, I don't have any money because she's never had to shop before. Exactly. Anything she's ever wanted has just come to her naturally. Yeah, I kind of like that back and forth because even though you're right, when we first meet her, theoretically, she should be this entitled princess, but she wants more than that. She doesn't just want to be married off. She wants control of her life. But yes, as soon as you remove her from that situation where it's all she knows, she has no idea what to do with herself. Yeah, I think that if you hadn't had put her in this situation... I don't think she would have been as likable as she was the entire film. Exactly. Exactly. And it just, it works so well for their relationship because just out of the gate, they immediately immediately start working as a team. And I think they're probably a team more so than any other Disney couple. Uh, Yeah. From the jump, I would agree with that. Or if you, you know, if you put them in context of the other movies that came out during the time period, like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and we'll we'll call it Lion King. I mean, I think those are like your core four for this era. Um, All right, sure. The Lion King was probably... Simba, But that's probably the closest thing because they grew up together. It was from the start. Right. But the difference between that and this is you've had... You have two characters that spent their whole lives together until Simba got chased away versus two characters meeting each other for the first time on a blind. Um, Because you're right, in Beauty and the Beast, it's a forced situation. In The Little Mermaid, Ariel knows who Eric is. So I think the fact that they were able to hit the ground running and they had chemistry right away, Mm -hmm. yes, it's a precursor for how strong their relationship is going to be over the course of the entire film. But because of the way the film is written and because of the way that it is paced because this movie is paced very well, it doesn't come off as rushed. Exactly. I think the other thing that they got really right, um, which may seem completely obvious because, you know, kind of any any genie folktale, it's always that you get three wishes. Uh, in the real story of Aladdin, um, you know, the story that this was based off of because... Like most Disney fairy tales, it is based off of an actual fiction. Um, Which, by the way, funny enough, they start with the peddler. So the peddler is setting up the story. We don't have a blue book open, but we still do get introduced uh, as to this is going to be a fairy tale. Yes. Um, But in the actual story, uh, it's unlimited wishes. And I think that it was limited to three here and that there are rules on those wishes. Um, I think that was a really smart choice because, you know, then obviously you lose the story completely. If Aladdin just gets to do whatever he wants and the only thing that he has to do is set the genie free when he's done getting everything, 
you know, there's not as much conflict there. And uh, then you certainly lose your ending with Jafar trapping himself. It's not just that, but everybody, I think, nowadays, and certainly when this movie came out, was accustomed to the story of Three Wishes. So right away, you're making it relatable. It's something that people can connect with. The other thing, though, is if it's Infinity Wishes, there's no drama to it. There's no consequence. There's no decision-making. You can just do whatever you want. Right. The biggest issue that he would have had is if he promised the genie's freedom, it's kind of like, you know, do I use 50 wishes and then do this? But it's still not as exciting or, you know, there's there's no there's no conflict. You become too powerful. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you, and you could just do whatever you want without having to think about it. And the minute you take that away... You no longer have a story. You have a free-for-all. Right. And, and why would anybody want to watch that? But I'm saying, for argument's sake, if they wanted to do Unlimited Wishes, the decision Aladdin would have to face is, when can I live without this? But that's still not as strong as, all right, I have to be a prince in order to be with Jasmine. He can make that happen. But the the genius here is that he gets so entangled in his web of lies is that he doesn't know if three wishes is even going to be enough to do it. And he's got to figure out how to do it himself. Right. Last thing for me on the story. Oh, well, it's, it's not so much the story, but it's the lack thereof. Um, I'm not sure if many people are familiar with this, but um, not just in the book, in the initial drafts of the script, uh, Aladdin did have a mother. And I think the smartest choice that they made was losing the mom. Um, I definitely think you still could have portrayed that story of the underdog, but I think it immediately makes Aladdin less scrappy and less streetwise and clever if there's somebody else that he's got to care for and look after. I guess he has Abu, but Abu also proves that he can he can fend for himself because he's a clever little thief in his own right. Yeah. Doesn't Aladdin doesn't need to take care of Abu the same way. And, you know, Aladdin might go about things a bit differently. You know, I don't know that he would steal a loaf of bread for his mother, even though he's doing it out of necessity. I don't know that he's going to want to go home and have to answer to how he acquired something like that. I agree. I think if Howard Ashman had not passed away, Prior to the completion of this film, this film would have been very different. Um, I don't want to say I question whether it would have been as good or not, but he storyline in a big way. And I don't think he would have allowed that portion of the story to be cut out. It worked in the Broadway show sure. when they adapted it. Um, but I agree. I think creatively it was a smart decision and I don't think that you're losing anything by not having her in the film. Agreed. They Speaking of Howard Ashman, uh, they did lose one song by by not having the mother in it. Yes. But, um, um, I, and it's... Uh, proud of your proud boy. Proud of your boy, yeah. Um, and that's something... Uh, I mean, the, the song is absolutely beautiful um you know it's it's out there uh howard ashman recorded it himself so there is a version of uh personal to him um you know being that he didn't get to see this for completion um in a way i'm glad that they didn't release something that was so personal without him and as much as i like the song 
And as much as I think it fits the Aladdin character, I'm kind of hoping it falls by the wayside in the live action. I don't know if this live action film is going to be a musical. I think you'll have musical numbers. Oh, it is. It will. They have Friend Like Me. They've already okay, well, they've they have, shown that in the trailer. They have Friend Like Me. You assume they're going to have Whole New World, but I don't know. Or at least a score of Whole yeah. New World. So I don't know if it's going to be a straight musical or not. Well, They've reg- done a good job of not giving that away in the trailers. Yeah. And regardless, I don't know, as much as I would like to see that song brought to life, I kind of feel like that was his and... Uh, you know, it should it should remain his. Um, and for those that are not as familiar with the time period that we're talking about here, um, Howard Ashman was the brilliant lyricist, along with Alan Menken, who gave us Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. Uh, Beauty and the Beast was actually it started out as a non-musical. They were just going to do it straight. And uh, he pushed to get the music in there. And because at the time that film was farther along, that's what got Beauty and the Beast out first. And because they were still having so many story issues with Aladdin, like keep the mother, not keep the mother, or um, there was another big point of contention in this one. Um, With the three wishes versus unlimited wishes. they didn't get it straightened out in time, so they rolled with Beauty and the Beast, and that's what ended up getting pushed out first. Yeah. Um, well, I, I have no issue, of course, with the way that this movie turned out. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't change a thing about it at this point. No, I mean, even with those two, you know, couple of nitty-gritty things that I mentioned, and really, it, it's not even flaws. It's just, you know, certain things where I was just kind of like, Huh, I, you know, it, it it's really more of a an observation because it's not true to life, but that's not what we're going for here. Right. All right. So we talked a little bit about Aladdin's mother, who is not in the film. Let's talk about the characters that are. Um, I guess starting with our title boy. Yes. Um, I think Aladdin's great. Um. You know, because of the films that preceded this, like we just said, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, those are centered around the princess. It's interesting to see a film, especially, you know, when we were kids and this movie came out, where it's centered around your average guy, because he's not a prince yet. He becomes one. No, you're right. And he kind of shares the arrogance that a prince would have. Because he's very savvy, and he has a little bit of song and dance man in him, Uh, (laughs) and I know that it's a musical, but you could just tell in the and it's I guess it's it's the way that they animated him. He kind of has that bleep eating grin a lot of the time, like very laid back. Yeah, like he knows exactly what he's doing all of the time. No, and when we first meet him, you're almost. I personally am not sure if we can trust him yet because when we meet him, he is stealing a loaf of bread. Right. Granted, it's set up. The lead in is that he is the diamond in the rough and that's who we're meeting. But he's stealing. And, you know, the whole first song, which we'll talk about, One Jump is about, you know, he says, I steal only what I can't afford and that's everything. And he's trying to convince you that he's not a bad guy. He's doing this because he has to. But 
he's almost like an unreliable narrator first meet him. And then that's immediately shot down when he finally gets away with the bread and he meets the two kids. Yes. He, it's also softened when you realize that that's Steve from Full House. <laughs> like, as soon as he steals the bread, I want to go, Steve! <laughs> yeah. Um, no, and that's something, that's one of those things that, like, I knew as a kid exactly who the voice was. It wasn't something I found out later and was like, oh, my God, the guy from Full Like, no, that show was huge at the time. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, they picked a popular actor of the time and that he got to be in a Disney film. Because um, he was like 16 or 17 when he did this. I remember when they used to show like behind the scenes stuff before like the wonderful world of Disney or they'd show you something on like TGIF. Mm. This being the first one of the first films I can remember where they were heavily focusing on at least a couple of members of the cast because you had him. Obviously, he was very famous because of Full House and Robin Williams is a legend. And I remember they focused on the two of them so much. Similar to when Oliver and Company came out, they were like, we've got Bed Midler and Cheech Marin and Billy Joel. Mm. Otherwise, you, you didn't really have any iconic actors or actresses voicing a ton of Disney characters up to this point in time. We're talking about early in the in the Disney animation renaissance. Right. I mean, you had, you know, certain big names that were like peppered in throughout the year. But like, yeah, I... I think this is probably one of the biggest ensemble casts you've ever seen besides yes. Oliver and company up, up until that point. Right. I think that that changes when well, you get the to the next movie, the Lion yeah, King, well, forget yeah, it. Yeah. Then, and then you lean into Toy Story and et cetera and so forth. And then real, I think that from there it took off and you basically had to have A-listers in your Disney films. Well, I think this is the era that also changed it and made the A-listers want to do Disney films. Because lest we forget, you know, Beauty and the Beast was one of the first animated films to be nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, you have to remember, this is just a couple of years removed from the, ba the Black Cauldron and the early Disney Wars and the company nearly being sold off. Like, I guess because you're a kid when this movie came out, for those of you who were, and you didn't really know what was going on behind the scenes, but knowing how historically the timeline played out, yeah, I mean, y you were right up against all of those things happening. So to see the 180 that they pulled, how quickly they pulled it, and how aggressively they pulled it, is so impressive. I think it's also different, too, because we also know, you know, we're looking back at Robin Williams and Gilbert Godfrey's body of work now, but at the time, not that they were up-and-comers, but they were both stand-up comedians. So for them to land voice work like this, it was probably a huge deal. Whereas, you know, you get somebody like Bette Midler, who, you know, she's known for singing and she's more known for Broadway and she's done a couple of movies, you know it was probably more difficult to land her than it was to pitch this to two comedians to say, hey, you want to lay down a couple of voice tracks? Agreed. In Robin Williams' case, we have a rough outline. Say whatever you want. Yeah, Robin Williams was obviously the most famous person in this cast and was very famous at the time, but you're right. I, I think that this sort of restarted his career because he did this and then he did toys and then he did... Goodwill Hunting. He did Jumanji. Jumanji Hook. You know, think about it. Yes, the same way that um, 
uh, Pulp Fiction sort of hit the reset button on Travolta's career, Mm. I want to say that the same thing happened here for Robin Williams. Certainly with family-friendly films. Exactly right. And I guess we might as well talk about the genie and Robin Williams at this point while we're talking about characters. Uh, I think the genie is probably the most perfect character ever commit to film. I mean, to me, in in the Disney canon, it's like Mickey, Winnie the Pooh, genie, as far as universally beloved characters. Yeah, um, I think... More recently, you you can certainly uh, stick Anna and Elsa in there. I think uh, Buzz and Woody are high on that list. I think Snow White is high on that list. I'd say top five. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, in the more recent years and the more characters that come out, yeah, I guess it does become harder to make that argument. But um, I just think as far as just being liked by you know, both boys and girls. And just as far as what Disney represents, you know, I think that if you're going to put like a face on the parks other than Mickey, I think Winnie the Pooh could be that face. I think the genie could be that face. Um, You know, like what they were trying to do with Roger Rabbit at one point. I don't necessarily feel, especially because Anna Elsa, they're, you know, the girls kind of gravitate more towards them. The boys kind of gravitate more towards Buzz and Woody. I feel like the genie and, and just, you know, the fun loving way that he is. I think he's more representative in that vein of Mickey. Yeah, I'll give you that one. I'll give you that. Um, but yeah, I, I got nothing. Genie has always been one of my favorites. Uh, one of my favorites and probably the most perfect casted character in the history of the Walt Disney Company. Yeah, I think this is definitely one of those cases where the animation was completely influenced by the actor. Yeah. And and just looking at it now, I, I can't think of another person to... Well, we got one. But uh, it, it just goes hand in hand. Like, there, there's just so much of Robin Williams in him. Right. Similarly, and, and I'll probably bring it up a lot because... This is the, to me, the animated counterpart to the live action film in terms of comparing the greatest live action films to the greatest animated films. I keep going back to Mary Poppins, the way that Julie Andrews was perfect casting for that character. And then we had Emily Blunt do it. And Emily Blunt was fantastic, but it was Julie Andrews that laid the groundwork. The jury is still out. Yes. In regards to Will Smith, because the film has yet to be released. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, boy, am I am I laboring right now? Um, but I mean, in the jury of public opinion of in the jury of public opinion, he's guilty of everything. <laughs> but <laughs> but I mean, until later this week, we're not really going to know whether he knocked it out of the park or not. But certainly, the groundwork laid in front of him. Uh, it's it's hard shoes to fill, I think, especially. With the unfortunate way that Robin Williams' life came to an end, and that was only about five years ago, but I still think it's very fresh in the minds of a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So people cherish Robin Williams. It's not to say that Will Smith isn't an extraordinarily talented actor. He is. 
But I feel like you could have put anybody in those shoes and they would have been criticized. Exactly. They're, they're enormous shoes to fill. I mean, for the nostalgia alone, our generation is just up in arms about it. But you're right. There, there's nobody that will ever be as perfect for Jeannie. You just can't. It, he, he did too good of a job. The only person I would have rather seen cast is the gentleman that played him in the Broadway show. Yes. And maybe that was a mistake, not getting him. But then again, this film does not really have A-listers in it. You needed a name to carry the, to carry the film. Right. And in a way, I'm glad that that's where they put the name because I think same thing with Aladdin and Jasmine. I don't think you could do right by anybody if you tried to get a name actor to fill, you know, one of them. Agreed. I think there would just be too many complaints. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about Jafar. Oh, let's please. Jafar is evil. He's completely calculated. He may be the smartest Disney villain we've ever seen Mm -hmm. because he is so cunning. I would say you want to talk about a top three character in any specific category in terms of the Disney canon. Villains, there's a guy that's in the top three. I love everything about Jafar. And, you know, for those that are new to the podcast, it's no secret that I do love me some Disney villains. But I love the tall, sinister quality about him that's juxtaposed by this flamboyance. Um, I love how he balances out with Iago because I don't even think you really need Iago that much. He's not essential to the plot other than grabbing the lamp, which I feel like Jafar could have done by himself. But what I love is that Iago's almost more of an accessory to Jafar than he is a sidekick because Jafar is so calculating. There's always some kind of ulterior motive with him, but Iago just voices whatever it is. Like when he's talking about filling the shoes of the Sultan and marrying Jasmine himself, um, you know, it, he he talks about becoming the sultan and Iago's like, and then I stuff the crackers down his throat. Like, you know, it's it's so obvious that Iago wants his own revenge on the sultan. And that's not nearly what Jafar is concerned with. But, you know, Iago just gets to voice that. And although it's obvious, it's just so funny. And Gilbert Gottfried is amazing from Perfection. Go. He is perfection in this movie. Um, regardless of your opinion of him as a comic, um, he's obviously a comic that is um, debatable in, in, in regards to a lot of what he says and a lot of what he does. Not, uh, not much different than Bob Saget. Yeah. And I know that that's a turnoff when people go to see Bob Saget live. But Gilbert Gottfried, in this role, another character that I really can't see anybody else playing. Because his attitude and just his voice, he brought that character to life. And similarly to Robin Williams, they gave him a lot of creative freedom. 
they just kind of let the tape go and they would say things. And if it was good, they worked it into the animation. Yeah, I think that's a big misconception, too, is that these films are not drawn out and the actors are not trying to like dub their voices to the film. The voices are done first and then they animate around that. Yeah. Um, there's this great caricature that one of the Disney animators did. I actually, you know, Aladdin was really kind of my first big jump into animation. Like I loved, like I said, the little mermaid. Um, but this is what really kind of piqued my interest in, you know, animated films and film in general. Um, my parents got me when I was a kid, the, um, the making of Aladdin book. And in it, there's this great sketch where they morph Gilbert Godfrey into Iago. So they draw his body pretty tiny and his mouth huge. And they, eventually through like a series of like four or five drawings just put feathers on him and turn it into a beak and they morph him into Iago and it's it's just brilliant um I gotta get that book I gotta post a couple of pictures to show you what we mean on our social media yeah um I love Iago I I think that sticking him in the enchanted tiki room was not a good idea Uh (laughs) and they figured that one out eventually and amazingly the fire that broke out in the tiki room, the only thing that got destroyed was Iago. <laughs> Nothing else. Hmm. I wonder. But a great character. and A uh, great pairing. Yes. You're right. It's not that he does much to drive the film, but he's essential in yeah. this movie. And, and like I said, I, I think Jafar is also one of the most motivated villains we've ever seen. Like, you know... We said we we did 101 Dalmatians and we said Cruella's kind of got a a couple of screws loose. Like, yes, she wants the puppies. But when you think about why she wants the puppies, you know, she's maniacal and she's almost evil for evil's sake. Right. You know, Ursula, she's got some motivation because she was kicked out of the palace. But I, I think Jafar is just the most motivated in that he's been biding his time and answering to the sultan and just kind of waiting for his chance to take over and he he never comes out and says that much and that's where you've got that balance with iago and he's like the chump sultan and his chump daughter it's just it's great and i I like the fact that as you said he's not evil for eagle for evil's sake and he's biding his time and he's ultimately he's motivated by power but I don't feel like they leaned on it as a crutch. No. Mm-mm. I think that it was believable. I think it came naturally to the character. And I really, really liked it a lot. What I don't like is how they portray the Sultan. I mean, granted, he's always getting hypnotized. But even when he's not under Jafar's spell, I feel like they make him out to be so dumb and ignorant. Like, Oh, I'm gonna go play with my toys, and he's got all these figurines and stuff, and he's—they just kind of make him a simpleton. Yeah, I—I I think that part of the argument can be made that if he were so powerful and so smart, that he would have seen through Jafar's motivations. But I think Jafar is a smart and savvy and cunning enough character where even against the toughest and the smartest, he could still come out on top. But. You're right. They sort of water him down. I feel like they used him as comic relief more than anything else. Yeah, but they just, they made him out to be so stupid. I agree with you, but 
you know, I, I just feel like they dumbed him down quite a bit, which they didn't need to do because he's he's already being hypnotized. Uh, yeah, agreed. Um, and then lastly, you know, we hit on her before, but uh, Jasmine is one of my favorite princesses. She's so strong-willed. Um, I love... I love her hair. I, I think it's so cool how they designed her hair and just the overall look of her. And uh, I, I love her voice too. Like I, you know, the, the actress that um, voiced her, she had a separate singing, singing voice and speaking voice. Both um, of them did. And they matched up very well. Yeah. It's almost flawless. It's amazing. It's truly amazing. Uh, but she's got such a unique voice. Uh, and I, I think it just works so well with Jasmine. Yeah. And, and speaking in terms of the animation, we had talked about it last night as we watched this film, you know, in preparation of this show. And you had said to me that in terms of kind of, for a lack of a better term, going for it or maybe pushing the envelope in terms of a, how do you say it? I guess a seductive animated character that mm -hmm. Jasmine was probably the one that pushed the envelope the most. Put Jessica Rabbit aside. She's in her own category. Oh, and I that, wasn't even thinking. And yeah. that and that animation was meant for a completely different audience. But you're right. You brought up the um, the part of the film where she's in a slave outfit mm -hmm. when Jafar becomes the Sultan. Um, I sort of compare that to when they did Slave Leia in uh, Very Return good of the Jedi. Point. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yes, I would say that. It's not that she's wearing anything very revealing. Right, because we've seen Belly before with Ariel. This is not the first bear midriff in a Disney film. Right. But this, up to this point in time, she was the most exotic looking Disney princess we had. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just saying, I mean, Ariel is in a bikini top for all intents and purposes. And I feel like... Um, you know, Jad Jasmine just kind of exudes more than Ariel does. And maybe because Ariel's supposed to be 16, she's supposed yeah. to be 21. I, I I get where there's a difference there. Right. But, um, yeah, I, I think they just kind of made Jasmine a little bit more va-va-voom than we've seen before. Right. And I think they were able to do that because she was an adult. Right. Um, and she already was a princess. It's not like, you know, she wasn't, for a lack of better term a simpleton it wasn't like bell you know where she eventually became a bit of royalty because of her love affair with the beast and when he became a prince again she was born into royalty she is royalty so she sort of has a leg up on everybody else and certainly the age difference between her and ariel makes a difference um it's not too over the top though no but to some the animation up in totality this film looks great on Blu-ray. Yeah. And quite frankly, when you have a movie that was released during the age of VHS, and we we talked about it a lot. This is 1992. Right. And we talked about it uh, two weeks ago when we did our review of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, how certain things don't translate well to um, <clears throat> excuse me, Blu-ray and DVD. This translates extraordinarily well, and it still looks amazing, which goes to show you how ahead of its time this film was in terms of its animation. Yeah, um, I'm going to geek out for a second. Uh, 
I love what they did here and how they played with color. I think that they did that more so really than any other film we've seen. I mean, you start to see it a little bit in Little Mermaid because obviously, I mean, that's that's it. It's obvious. They're underwater. You're going to use a lot of those cool blue tones so the characters pop off that background. Yes. Here, they use that same application but there's a lot of scenes where they'll reverse it and the juxtaposition is really nice because you've got probably more scenes taking place at night than we've seen in a Disney film so far so you do get a lot of those cool colors Um, but then sometimes you're in the desert too so you have two completely different backgrounds and the characters work on top of all of them Um, but I just love how they played with it because you know Jafar is so dark and he's got like that hourglass shape and you know when he's in his kind of lair in the castle it's all dark and moody but then you know when he's in the palace he stands out so much because you've got a really dark character on top of a brighter background um so I like how they played with that but then sometimes they would play with um you know, like Abu at night and they would like shine light on him and have him, you know, kind of pop out of the shadows. And it it was just so cool what they did. Um, And not just with the color too, what was really interesting to learn, um, you know, you can kind of tell that they were starting to have some fun with the texture of the clothes and, you know, how they had a lot more, you know, like you can see there's like a weight to the fabric. And I thought that was more of a cultural thing. Um, But upon doing a little bit of research with this film, they actually modeled all of the characters after the Aladdin font in the beginning of the film because Mm. they had that first. So they wanted all of the characters to have like those really curved lines. And um, it was kind of a headache for the ink and paint department because when they go to do the cleanup of the initial animation, they had to, they couldn't just trace over those lines because some had like two strokes of a pencil, some lines were thicker, and they essentially had to learn how to redraw everything in this style. It wasn't just a straight tracing the way that they were normally used to doing. Yeah. Um, So I thought that was really interesting and something that um, it always stood out to me as a kid, Um, you know, and it's easy. It's easier to see why now. I don't know if you notice there's a lot of blue and white lines in Aladdin and Jasmine's hair, not so much in the wider shots, but in the close up to get that definition and make it look like it's flowing. Mm hmm you know, you can't have a black line. You have to, you know, you have to make it stand out somehow. So sometimes it looks like Jasmine's got like a little halo around her of blue. Yeah. Just to make her pop off a background. <clears throat> and give them some dimension. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the animation is so well done. And we're we're forgetting a big one here, the carpet. Yes. Animated by our friend Randy Macho Man Cartwright. <laughs> uh, the, the carpet has always been impressive but it 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 stands out on the blu-ray absolutely i I, i'm gonna this is one of those films that in spite of the fact that it came out as long ago as it did i say that you have to see it on blu-ray this is one similar to i think lion king where i think it you gain more watching it in blu-ray than you do on vhs and i don't say that about a lot of films especially ones that came out long before but I think those two films 
specifically uh, are the right. ones that were so ahead of their time that they look so good. Yeah, because for me, if the film was made before the technology came out, you're not supposed to watch it on that technology. These actually do hold up. But um, what I love about the carpet, and we didn't really talk about him as a character, which we should have, because he kind of reminds me of the footstool from Beauty and the Beast, which is actually a dog, but I feel like the carpet does have so many dog-like qualities because he's so loyal. He's always there when you need him. Whenever Aladdin summons him, he's right there and he bails him out of trouble a lot of the times. But even I feel like a lot of the movement... Uh, is just very dog-like. And, you know, we actually did have Randy Cartwright. We were lucky enough to get him on the show. And um, that was one of the things that I, I asked him was, how do you animate something like that that doesn't have a face and make them emote? Because, you know, at least with Beauty and the Beast, you know it was supposed to be a dog. You can give the footstool a tail. And that's kind of a tell as to right. what the emotion is. This, you got nothing other than a really intricate painting on the carpet. Yeah, so there's not a lot to work with. And um, Randy told us that what he practiced on was trying to animate a sack of flour and give that emotion and kind of slouch it over to portray that it's grumpy or, um, you know, that's another thing. Um, and it was funny when I got this book, you know, little do you know, years on down the line, you'll get to actually talk to the animator, which was mind blowing. Um, but there's a great sequence where they do go through all of the different carpet emotions. That's something that I'll post to, because that was something that always stood out to me in the book, uh, was how many different variations they did for carpet. Yeah. Um, one scene that I really like in particular is when Aladdin goes into the cave of wonders, the way that they animated it, not just with the backgrounds, but sort of the whole vibe just it it just it's so Indiana Jones to me. Yeah. And I love it so much because I'm a big Indiana Jones fan. But it just it didn't strike me until last night. Like, why do why have I always liked this so much? And I don't I, I admittedly cannot remember what it was that stood out to me at this moment. But something happened, and I was like, oh, just like in Indiana? Oh. Is it where Abu grabs the thing? Because he doesn't yes, switch and then it I out think, with anything. And then I think the, um, the platform that the um, uh, lamp was on, it descends into yeah. the staircase. Yeah, I th and then the whole thing starts to close in around itself. Yeah, that's probably what it was. It's, it's reminiscent without being a total riff-off. And I think that that scene also has to do with they were trying to flex their muscles a little bit with the computer animation. Yeah. Uh, they didn't use it a lot because it was still relatively new, but certain things they were starting to incorporate. And that's actually to go back to the carpet for a second. That's how they got that detailed painting on the carpet. They didn't actually painstakingly paint that pattern every time. Um, he was, it was hand drawn animation, but they used the computer as a print to apply it to whatever pose the carp the carpet was in so they didn't have to keep painting that. They'd still be working on the film if they were going to do all that hand by hand. Right. And they were, I mean, they were already up against enough of a deadline as it is because they scrapped their initial story and had to start over. Yeah. True. And I love at the end of the movie when uh, the genie goes on vacation and he comes back wearing the goofy hat. <laughs> that hat that everybody owned after a trip to Disney. You know, this... 
This film has probably more Easter eggs than any other. Like, even in the scene where Jeannie's granting him his first wish, uh, you know, he he calls Aladdin a liar, essentially, and he turns his head into Pinocchio. Then uh, he pulls Sebastian out at one point. Yes. And uh, he says Dumbo. Yes. There's a lot of little Easter eggs in this one. Yeah, more so than we had seen up to this point in time in any other Disney film. Um and and never have they been so intentional. Right. Usually right. it's like, oh, there's the fork from that movie sitting on the table. And it's like very subtly put in there. You're, you you get like a background poster in something else. Exactly. Um, I don't have anything else to add in terms of the animation unless you do. No. Okay. I, I think I've geeked out enough for everyone. Time to talk about probably the most important element of this film. And that's the music. The music is iconic from go. I remember seeing this movie in the theaters and being blown away by all of the songs, all of the musical numbers, and how they go hand in hand with their animation, especially in Whole New World. Um, And just thinking to myself, I, I knew I was seeing something special, and I knew these were going to be songs that I was going to listen to literally for the rest of my life. Because I grew up on... A healthy diet of The Jungle Book, which was a film that had come out when my parents were kids and they had told me all about it and they took me to see it and they bought us the VHS. And I always loved that movie, but I always knew that was a movie that my parents had. And yes, Beauty and the Beast is a great movie. Yes, Little Mermaid is a great movie. And I enjoyed them very much when I was a kid. And same thing with Cinderella. But I remember this being the first animated film because I had not seen Oliver and Company yet. This was the first Disney animated film that I remember thinking, this is my movie. I remember, I mean, Little Mermaid was always more of my jam, but um, I remember listening to Beauty and the Beast a lot in the car because we had the cassette tape, so we would ask for my parents to put that on quite a bit. Um, But it's not that I didn't play this this music that much um but i do remember i just didn't listen to it as frequently but i i probably loved it more than anything else um and as far as music being fitting to a film i think stylistically this is one of i mean yeah okay beauty and the beast it's it's pretty obvious it opens on you know the provincial town song where Belle's walking through and everybody's saying bonjour. Okay. Very much on the nose. Uh, but I feel like this music captures the setting so well, maybe more than anything else. Yeah. So I think makes the most sense. We'll, we'll start at the top, work our way down and just dissect these couple of songs. Sure. It's not a ton of music. No, actually there's That's not. That's the funny thing yeah. is like when you look at it, it's one, two, three, four songs. I, if you would ask me, before we recorded this, how many songs did Aladdin have? I would have said oh, six or seven at least. Yeah. No, it's four songs. That's how that's how significant all four of them are, though. Yeah. Starting with one jump. Yeah, one jump is such a great setup for both the setting and the character because it's taking you through the streets of Agrabah. We're seeing, you know, it's not a very wealthy area that he's running through. Um you know, and it shows right away how clever Aladdin is. And like I said, I kind of like that it sets it up so you can't really trust him at first. You don't know if you should. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's such a great 
jumping off point. Yeah. Um, I have nothing else to add on it. I, I kind of just agree with what you say. Anything at this point is just going to be me regurgitating what you're saying. I think we just go right into friend like me. Yeah, no, and both of them too. I think what I like about this music is not just the way they play into the set. There's such like catchy Broadway numbers. Yes. That's where you can really see Howard Ashman's influence over this. Yeah, and Friend Like Me, as good as all of the music is, in my opinion at least, and I'm interested to hear what your opinion would be. You can let us know on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Monoreal Radio. To me, this number is the showstopper. Uh, I don't think For sure. it's pro- it's not it's not the most wonderfully animated musical number. Obviously, Whole New World is on its own level. Um, but to me, this is the one. This is the showstopper. This is Robin Williams at his best. This is animation with actor and songwriting coming together perfectly. It, it's everything. I, I think, you know when I'm thinking back to this time period as a child, like that's the song that I remember most. Well, that and Prince, because it's, it's interesting. Friend Like Me is probably my favorite number, but I think Prince Ali might be the most memorable song because I remember that was like my first trip to the park. And I remember when they added, it was almost a full Aladdin parade yes. when it came to MGM. And I remember those commercials with the spitting camels. All every kid wanted was to be spit on by a camel. And they're gone now. I know. They had them outside of Aladdin's flying carpets, and now they took them away. Yeah, I don't know why, but but they're gone now. But yes, I remember. And I think we all remember, well, not all, but for those of us who are old enough to remember when this movie came out, uh, in the trailer, and even I want to say there were like Happy Meal commercials, because I want to say there were Happy Meal toys. There definitely were Happy Meal toys. Or um, Was it Burger King? Um, Burger King might have had this, regardless. Um, that scene, uh, or, or that clip of Aladdin sitting on top of the elephant with that big grin on his face mm. and his prince outfit. There's just so much that has become iconic. And I, I, I keep beating a dead horse. And I'd apologize if I were actually sorry, but I'm not. But that's there's no other way to explain what these songs, what this animation, or what this film has become. Yeah, no, and I, I feel like this was probably... Because pro, I feel like Beauty and the Beast is coming up more now with Beast Castle, and now they're going to do... They're going to redo Meisner's to be like the library. Um I feel like this was probably the most hard-hitting film as far as in- incorporating it into the parks because it wasn't just that parade. They had the character breakfast at MGM. Like, everything in MGM was tailored towards Aladdin. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, back to the song. Um, that was probably the standout to me, though not my favorite, but that that's like the one that I remember the most. And it's, it's a great number, you know, because... Of where it is in the film, you know, obviously Genie's got to create all this hype for Aladdin and make people believe that he's a prince. But the way that he goes about it, I mean, the song is so over the top with what Aladdin can achieve. Uh, But I love how the Genie pops in and out like he's, you know. He's the MC. Yeah, exactly. It's not the Rose Parade, but it's just funny how they have him kind of throwing his two cents in here and there. And it is completely over the top. Yeah. But... That's what makes it so good. 
is the fact that Jeannie is trying to sell him yes. so over the top that it's not uncharacteristic of the genie. And it's also not un- uncharacteristic of Aladdin because in Aladdin's mind, this is what a prince is supposed to be. Right, and this is where he starts to believe his own hype. This yes. is kind of where the lie, the lie starts. And then Jasmine's just still like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, and it is. It's completely ridiculous and over the top. And I love how um, Jafar's not buying any of it from the beginning. Yes. Yeah, it's it's a great number. It's, it's very... Um, for as catchy as the song is, it's very story heavy too. Agreed. And while I think that Friend Like Me is the showstopper, there's, there's no, I'm not even going to try to argue it. Certainly the most iconic song out of the film, and it's become one of the most iconic songs in Disney, is A Whole New World. That was another song that from the moment you heard it, you knew that it was special, you knew that it was going to be... You know, it, it was it was going to last forever. Yeah, I mean, just even listening to it now, it takes me right back. I mean, the the two kids that sang it, uh, Leah Salonga and um, the the boy's name escapes me at this point. They were still pretty young when they recorded it, but it, you know, and what's funny was that she was a Broadway actress. I think she had just done Miss Saigon, and um, she didn't really know what. Aladdin was going to be about um you know she had the script but she had never done anything like this before and the two of them just portrayed it so well considering that they weren't the speaking actors and all they had to do was the music and they weren't as familiar with the story I I think the song is absolutely incredible but the whole sequence is is beautiful and I mean you know as well it should be because they're supposed to be seeing the world so they got a couple of iconic things in there like the pyramids and you know they end in China they I think you know take a little spin through Hollywood Forever Cemetery at one point <laughs> or Fantasia however you want to look at it yeah um but yeah the the background is really beautiful especially when they're you know going through the streets and then up through the clouds and I always look forward to that on Phil Her Magic yeah well I was going to bring that up it's perfect in Philharmagic, and from from the songwriting to the way it's sung to the instrumentals to the animation, everything about this comes together so cohesively um, that you can't help but love it. And mm. I've never met anybody similarly to I've never met anybody who didn't like Aladdin. I don't I've, I don't know of anybody who does not like this song or this sequence. Yeah, I, I, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who doesn't like this movie. Yeah. Um, last song. Um, and you know what's interesting, and I only realize it now, is that um, Jafar doesn't really get like the hardcore villain song. He doesn't get the big, you know, he doesn't get um, poor unfortunate souls. You know, there's nothing. He doesn't get that like elaborate Broadway show tune that I love so much. And for for a character that I love so much, I kind of wish he has it. Um, He does kind of sing his own take on Prince Ali, but like it's almost a deconstructed version of the song when he exposes Aladdin. But it's not even like a full song. I don't think Jafar needed a song. Honestly, the whole the one line in that song sums up everything about Jafar's character and the story in one shot. And uh, it's when he says he's just a con. Need I go on? It exposes Aladdin. And it's it's true of the character when he's just like, I'm over this. Let's move on to the next thing. Yeah. 
Um, but I mean, we uh, we've gushed on it already. I'm not spoiling anything, or, or you know, at the risk of re- being repetitive here, um, it's one of my favorite animated films of all time. It's one of my favorite films of all time, animated or live action. Um, I had the video game for Super Nintendo. Same. Oh, getting the out of the, the apples. Yes, and getting out of the cave of wonder. That was the hardest thing, because you had the. I never knew the difference between what is it the stalagmites and the stalactites. I think the stalagmites are at the top. They form yeah. the M. Whatever. Yeah. You wouldn't because that was the thing. It was a rudimentary program. So there were times where I knew I didn't hit the stupid thing, and I I wiped out anyway. It was so aggravating. But you had that, and then you had the lava behind you. There was so much going on. I love this movie, and I loved its sequel. It was probably the only film that had a good straight-to-VHS sequel. I think a lot of that was because of the music, too. The music in the sequel was just as good. Yeah, I haven't watched it in a long time, and we will get to it eventually on this show, but I love Return of Jafar. I do, too. And I don't understand why it was not released in theaters. It probably could have been. I think it should have been. But with all that being said, everything about Aladdin, I loved it when it came out. I still love it to this day. Uh, yeah, no question. It holds up. So, And this is actually one, you know, like when I saw the trailer for the live action Beauty and the Beast remake, I was immediately enchanted with it. I thought it was really cool. This one, I'm sweating a little. Yes and no. I'm going to give Will Smith the benefit of the doubt. Oh, not for Will Smith. I think everybody's got to knock it off and give him a chance. I don't like how Jafar looks. I've stated it before. I think he looks dumb. Yeah. I um, I just feel like because of where this was in the Disney timeline, because of what it means to the parks, I think for my own nostalgia, that's where my concerns are. Yeah. But as far as Will Smith, I have an open mind. Um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. But as far as, I, I just don't know that it's going to capture that same magic as this did. Probably not. But we're interested to hear your take on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Monoreal Radio. News this week, um, because Disney hasn't bought enough, apparently. <laughs> uh, they are buying the remaining stakes in Hulu. And that led me to think perhaps they're going to merge Hulu and Disney+. Plus. However, no, that is not the case. You dissected that for me a little bit further. Yeah, at first I couldn't figure it out. I was like, why do we need two streaming platforms? I don't get it. You just formed your own. Um, But what they're going to use Hulu more for is... um, more original content, you know, like how The Handmaid's Tale is on there now. Yeah. Um, and more of their Fox stuff. Because if you think about it, you know, I think Disney Plus is supposed to be the entire canon and a couple of, you know, there's going to be the original content, there's going to be the Marvel films, there's going to be the Star Wars stuff. But you can't necessarily put The Simpsons on Disney Plus, even though that is a Disney property now. And they did promise everyone the full catalog. And you can't really run Timon and Pumbaa into Sons of Anarchy. (laughs) Yes, that's a really good point. So I I think there's got to be a little bit of a separation of church and state here. So 
I think it's I think it's okay. I'm kind of glad that they did this. And, you know, that way they can still keep everything family friendly. You don't have to worry about if your kid gets a hold of the Roku remote, what they're going to find on Disney Plus. Very true. And we got another uh, trailer this week for Toy Story 4. At this point, I'm not really excited with trailer releases for Toy Story 4. It's like, okay, just get me to the movie. I don't know why. I've seen a bunch. I've seen a bunch, and it's not that the movie doesn't look good, but for some reason, it's not like when we got Star Wars trailers or a Marvel trailer. The trailers for Toy Story 4, and I guess mostly because I don't think that it's necessary to have another film, um, I'm just not getting excited to see the movie like i'm going to see it i'm sure it's going to be fine but these trailers are not exciting me i'm more excited and intrigued by the new child's play poster which if you haven't seen it i won't spoil it i also don't want to ruin anything for any of the kiddos so i i would say it's probably not the most child appropriate thing it might scar them a little bit but if you can find it definitely take a look at it it's hilarious. I have to say, their marketing has been phenomenal. Uh, yeah. Not that I want to see any of our beloved characters in these positions, um, but the marketing has been so good. I haven't seen anything this good since Deadpool, which is also yeah. now in the Disney canon, and I cannot wait to review that on the show. I know Deadpool's a Disney prince now. <laughs> I'm so excited. Well, anyway... Thank you guys for joining us this week. Uh, again, I apologize uh, for. Ge- I got through it. I got through it, but I, I I am just so out of it right now, and I feel like I have. I'm sounding worse and worse as this goes on. Yeah, we're we're gonna wrap you. Uh, with that said, if you're looking to plan a trip to the Spitting Camelus Parks. Get at me either directly through our social media or you can shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com, and I'm happy to get you a free quote on your trip. For Jackie, I'm Sean. I'm going to get some Claritin. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.